Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. We're going to be addressing one of these timeless questions that this morning in our worship service. We're going to be in, um, kind of readdressing a question that we started asking ourselves last week. The question is, what is God's will and how do I discern that will? How do I know what his will is? What does God want and how do I know <laughs> if the things that I'm doing, the things I'm engaging in are a part of that will? We pondered that question last week as we considered the promises that God has made both to his creation, but also to his humanity by the desires and the passions and the inspirations he places in our hearts. What does God ask for us? And are the things that I'm doing lining up with that? (laughs) We simply want to know what it is that's being asked of us, don't we? You know, think of your jobs. Think of when you're learning to play a new game. Okay, just tell me the rules so I can get by through the rules. We want to boil it down that way because that's the way our minds work. How do I participate and engage within the boundaries of expectations so that I can succeed and so that you can succeed? We can all be happy. Just spell it out. Let me know how it works. You know, so much of our culture molds us this way because so many of elements of our culture are transactional. In other words, it's a real simple this for that. And we discussed that last week. This also appears to be, at least in the the way it's written, how so many of God's promises in scripture are presented or constructed. If that condition is met, then this outcome can be expected. Clean, simple, and contractual. You may have heard the ancient term quid pro quo, which translates as this for that. The Latin phrase exactly says what we're considering. And this Latin phrase is still a part of our common culture, our common awareness, because this is the way we tend to think. And it's been the way we've thought for a long, long, long time. And while we strive for the simplicity, and at times, at times it does appear to work this way. And we simply do like the simplicity of it. In our relationships, is it really that simple? (laughs) Yeah, think of your closest friends. Think of your partner. Some of you may have a contractual relationship in certain aspects of what you do and just living life, but it certainly doesn't cover it all, does it? (laughs) We expect some intimacy, some compassion, We expect some magnetism, (laughs) some reciprocity. And our relationship with God is no different. Do we think of our relationship with God and his kingdom as intimate? Yeah, maybe for you, maybe depending on the, the, 
the way you grew up, maybe if you grew up in the church, if you grew up in the, the Pentecostal or the charismatic church, you'd hear this kind of idea a lot, like intimacy with the Lord. But depending on your exposure, maybe this idea is kind of foreign to you or new to you, or maybe even a little bit weird sounding, icky sounding. Because if we don't seek intimacy and if we don't attain intimacy to some certain level, if we allow our relationship with God to remain solely contractual, that contractual relationship, if you haven't experienced it yet, you will, it'll tend to devolve, resulting in entitlement or frustration or disappointment or bitterness or blame because God's not holding up his end of the bargain. Of course, there's a lot of factors at play here, but we've all been observers of this kind of relationship and the way it tends to devolve. One party becomes bitterly frustrated because the other is not holding up their end of the stated or unstated agreement, while the other is bitter for the same reasons, or sometimes they have their own reasons they reach an impossible impasse. And it seems that the missing ingredient is intimacy. The setting for our scripture today is in Micah chapter six. We're continuing to follow the lectionary. This is our Old Testament passage for today. And the setting for this passage is a courtroom. We see a courtroom scene where party one and party two are bringing their grievances to one another. They're airing their grievances out. In the opening verses, the poet makes it clear that God and his people have drifted in their relationship with one another so that they find themselves now in this continual contention with one another. One would expect perhaps that, especially God being God, he would just have righteous anger and just tell the people, get it together. But instead, this passage is full of words of heartfelt bewilderment and a plea for compassion and intimacy. Before we jump into our passage, let us pray. Holy God, your blessings are abundant and your wisdom exceeds our grasp. Fill us with your spirit as we hear your word this day that we may be justice seekers and peacemakers, sharing your life among those who have forgotten, those who may be weak or those who are persecuted, and thereby reveal your glory to all. Amen. Amen. Well, Micah chapter six, this is one of those small prophet uh, books at the end of the Old Testament. If you're looking it up, it'll be on the screens for you. Micah chapter six. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Please answer me. 
For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed, and how Balaam, son of Bear, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God Most High with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him a thousand rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Thanks be to God. Don't your hearts break at parts of that? When God is saying, oh my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you so tired of me? Have you ever felt this way with someone that you love? <laughs> and then the people, the poet invites us into the feeling of emotion that God's pouring out, this apparent lack of gratitude or appreciation. But likewise, the people are exasperated. What can we bring to you, Lord? Should we bring him a thousand rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil? I started trying to figure out how I would quantify 10,000 rivers of olive oil. That's a lot of olive oil. <laughs> Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? They're literally, they're literally saying nothing is ever enough for you. How many of us have overheard these kinds of conflicts with those that we love, or maybe we've been in the thick of them ourselves? One party lays out their case before the other, as God has done here, begging those assembled, the courts in this case of the mountains and all creation, to remember all the gracious things that God has done for Israel, calling them to a promise, calling them to a land for their prospering, even protecting them every step along the way, and even despite and this, all despite their thick-headedness and their stubbornness. You know, God continued to rescue Israel, even from captivity in Egypt. This little, uh, this little mention, this little aside is, you know, one of these crazy passages of Scripture where God says, even when I intercede when Balak, the king of Moab, you know, again, the, the children of Israel were wandering in the desert and they had amassed this army and the kingdom of Moab was nearby and Balak saw this great horde of people and started kind of getting nervous. And so he finds this prophet named Balaam. Apparently, I mean, not a Jewish prophet, but apparently he had God's ear. He had a reputation. So he hires Balaam to go curse the people. And if you've read this story, you know that time and time again, Balaam is met with opposition. He just can't go through it go through with it. Finally, the final time, his donkey stops and talks to him and says, you're not supposed to curse these people. These are my people. You're supposed to bless them. 
God turned the blessing to a curse, or a curse to a blessing. If you haven't read that, read Exodus 22, 23, and 24. But God's just hurt that the people seem to have forgotten their story. And in doing so, they've forgotten how many good things they've received. Therefore, the people have fallen out of relationship with God, and consequently, they found themselves out of relationship with one another and the nations around them. They no longer seem centered in a story with God. Meanwhile, the people of God seem to be waving a contract in his face, saying, we've done everything you've asked. <laughs> we've done the offerings. We've burnt the sacrifices. And you don't seem to care. Do you want more sacrifices? I mean, you asked for a ram. Do you want 10,000 rams? You asked for a quart of olive oil. Do you want 10,000 rivers of olive oil? You can hear the exasperation. It breaks your heart. It breaks my heart. The bitterness and the blame. But it's the natural progression of contractual relationships if there's nothing else there to support it. What's the missing ingredient? You know, the transaction's degraded, the contract is in breach, but God says, you've misunderstood the point all along. I didn't need your sacrifices, you did. You needed them in order to trust me for your provision by giving me a tithe or a tenth of what you've gained yourself. I never asked for a transaction. I wanted intimacy. I wanted relationship. So here's the reminder for us today. As we spoke last week about hearing and discerning God's will, we talked a lot about the quid pro quo or the this and that statements. But we also talked about times in which God's move, God's mercy, the things that God does just happens. It's not, a, it's not a what, it's a when, right? While we're tempted, we might be tempted, we cannot boil our relationship with God down to a transaction. Instead, God desires us to respond to him because of what he's done. Because of this, then we will do that. Do you hear the difference? We talked about that last week. God does not love and pursue his children because we deserve it, because we've gained it. He does so because so often we don't. It's in his nature to provide grace and mercy and to bridge the gap that we tend to create in our relationships, especially with him. As we've seen, the danger of solely a quid pro quo approach to faith is that it quickly turns into legalism. And legalism or contractualism in our faith, it's like a disease. It's like a cancer that degrades it. When we feel that we're owed something, it grows and it festers into entitlement and bitterness. Just as we have seen in the passage we read this morning. May we respond to God, not because we've earned it, 
but precisely because we haven't. That's grace. That's what mercy is. That's this thing that draws us. And that is the foundation of a relationship that can thrive and blossom for a lifetime and even longer in the midst of challenges, in the midst of difficulty. I think we know this. I think you know this. I don't think you're, being, you're hearing about the grace of God for the first time this morning. But sometimes we need reminders, don't we? Sometimes we find ourselves, despite our best efforts, in a standoff with God. Why do we so often find ourselves leaning back into this legalism? Just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to make you happy. Oh man. Because we must constantly strive for and nurture intimacy and gratitude. I don't know why it's not the default for most of us, but it's not the default for most of us. We've gotta keep striving for it. And why can gratitude be so elusive? I mean, I think we understand this. Some of us struggle with feeling gratitude because we tend to focus on the challenges, the obstacles that we face from time to time. We tend to have a pessimistic outlook. Others of us have difficulty finding gratitude because of past trauma, and we have to admit that. We have to seek healing and processing for that trauma. Some of us struggle with feeling gratitude because when we compare our lives and our experiences to, the, uh, the, to others, we feel that we don't have very much to be grateful for because look at them, they're so great. Israel did this all the time to God. As you are familiar with the Old Testament, constantly Israel was struggling saying, all these other nations have great kings. All these other nations have awesome armies. Maybe we could do all that stuff too. As a matter of fact, they said, these other nations, they sacrifice their children to their gods and their gods seem happy. Maybe we should try that. No, 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 God calls. Take a step back and look again. So this morning, let's, let's prescribe ourselves a prescription for gratitude. Let's look at a recipe by which we may develop or strengthen the gratitude that we have in our lives. You might hate it. I hope you don't. I hope you love it. I love you. I hope you love it. This is good, right? We can go through this together. The first of the two ingredients, there's two ingredients. Simple. The first is read scripture. By reading and rereading the story of God and his interactions with his people over and over again, you will see how God is not looking for contractuals, not looking for contracts, not looking for sacrifices. He's looking for relationship. He simply wants to love his people and to grant them mercy and to have his people love him back. By filling your minds with these stories, by saturating your consciousness with them, we preserve our distracted hearts and our minds from devolving into panic when things get hard. You know, the Old Testament's full of these stories, especially 
leans towards these stories of grace and mercy. But when you read it, sometimes the things we read in the Old Testament don't sound very graceful and they don't sound very merciful. Especially all these stories of war and conquer and imprisonment and all that kind of stuff. But read it carefully. We need to acknowledge that most often in scripture, in the Old Testament, when things begin to go awry, it's usually the result of God's petulant people taking matters into their own hands, trying to accomplish the promises of God in their own way. They were not waiting on God. They were not sitting and being in his presence, tasting and seeing that God is good. There's some tension in there. You'll run through tension. But when you see the picture in whole, you'll see the glory of God. And all of the Old Testament points towards Jesus. And all of the New Testament points backwards towards Jesus. We need to read scripture through the lens of Jesus. So that's ingredient one, reading the scripture. Ingredient two, remind yourself of your story. Remember your own story. As we look at our lives, short or long, and we consider with graciousness the goodness that has come to us, it's not because we earned it, it's because somebody loved us. Somebody loved us and simply wanted good for us. Parents, friends, family, your loved ones, your partner, your children, God. The most gracious things, the most dear things that we experience are because somebody just loved us. Even though we have systems surrounding us all the time that are transactional, I've got this because I did that. We need to consciously remind ourselves that so many times the good things that we have in our lives are not because I did this or that. They're simply because we are and someone loves us. You know, um, it's easy, and it's easy for us to be bad at this. Maybe I should say it's easy for me to be bad at this. <laughs> I tend to be such a forward-looking person. I tend to be thinking in the moment, how can we thrive in this moment, and how can we thrive in the moments to come, that looking back is sometimes hard for me. It's a skill that I don't, I'm not super good at, but I keep trying, I keep trying. We need to make space. We need to make time to recounter our story in order to remember the many good things that God has done for us despite our shortcomings. Reminding ourselves of that truth over and over is a recipe for gratitude that results in beautiful relationships and a beautiful life. So that's the recipe for perhaps protecting ourselves from falling into legalism or entitlement with God. But I think we need to spend just a moment in closing in this final verse of chapter six that we read. Because when we ask ourselves, what does God ask of us? What does God require? We have the answer. It reminds us of the question we asked last week. 
How do I know what God wants and how do I do it? Well, you could sum it up this way. What you've received freely, may you give it freely. Jesus said things like this. Scripture says things like this. We're all the beneficiaries of God's love, his mercy, and his grace. And God wants nothing more than for us to recognize that gift and then to pass it on. Verse 8 says it perfectly. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. There's no better summary of this relational ethic that God has all throughout scripture. There's no better summary of the commandments even that we have in the Old Testament. There's no better summary for what the incarnation of Jesus was all about than to say, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. So how do you do that? Here we are, we just said we gotta like not figure out what the rules, but we're gonna spend some time talking about what each of those three things are. Do justice. It's more than just being well-educated and well-informed. It's more than just expressing sympathy and prayers when justice is not being fulfilled. We're called to actively participate in correcting the wrongs of our world as outlined in scripture. And that is the key for us as outlined in scripture. We live in a world where we're daily made acute, acutely aware of our need for this. The last week's news cycle makes us all too familiar. More mass shootings, more stories of racially exasperated police violence. The list goes on and on. Should we feel heartbroken? Yes. Should we take time to sit in lament and heartbreak because of the curse that still lives in our world? Yes. Should we pray, Lord have mercy? Yes. Should we get involved in some way in which we practically lend our time and our talent and our resource towards righting these wrongs? Yes. This is what God would like us to do to faithfully know his story and to faithfully do everything we can. We all have our own versions of what justice looks like. We all have our own versions of who is not receiving justice. But again, we tend to be a little selfish and a little short-sighted in our, those definitions unless we're grounding them in scripture. We must look at what Jesus defined as justice, who he reached out to, who he did justice to, who he showed mercy to over and over again. And likewise, who he corrected. And spoiler alert, it tended to be the people who should have known better, the religious leaders in the church. May we do justice. May we love mercy. When we see mercy taking place, we should love it and we should proclaim it. We should announce it. We should wave a flag and call attention to it every time, everywhere. Now, it, this is maybe a little bit different than the way we take a sip of our favorite coffee drink and say, yum. <laughs> it's a little different than our favorite ice cream. Think of it the way 
you love the person who gets the best of you. You go out of your way to enact mercy to them. You go out of your way to say thank you, to be gracious for the things they do for you. Freely you've been given, freely you should give. You know, for years and years before his retirement, my dad had this little plaque on his desk at work. I saw it one time. It said, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your, your power to act. You might recognize that. That's Proverbs 3, verse 27. And I asked him about it. I said, what, what's that? What does that mean to you? What's that about? And he said, that's been the secret to my success here. My dad had a long career of leading, managing teams of people in his careers with NASA and IBM and Lockheed Martin. By going out of his way to honor and to enact mercy and good every day to anybody he could, every chance he got, he thrived. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. And if we look at people the way Jesus looked at people, love and mercy is due to everyone, <laughs> right? Think of how many people, how many opportunities that affords to you every day, hundreds. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. Just when we're tempted to pat ourselves on the back because things are going pretty good, <laughs> just when we're tempted to think that we kind of have things started to, we're starting to figure things out, remember your story. Remember your story. We must be on constant, constant vigilant guard against our own ability to have things figured out, to have the game with God figured out because that's when we most need to remember that there is no game in the first place. There's only grace and mercy and the gratitude that generates in our heart and the relationship, the intimacy that comes from that. But walking humbly is more than just a frame of mind. I think there's an action step here for us too. I think the action step of walking humbly is prayer. Now, the caveat here, I know that prayer can be challenging and some of you have a contentious relationship with prayer. It can be frustrating. We're reading Jaber Crow and this wonderful chapter last week talked about the problem, the tension of prayer. What happens when our prayers seemingly go unanswered? One, either God doesn't care, two, God isn't able, or three, God just simply isn't listening. That's a problem. <laughs> I get it. We'll see what happens, but I'm thinking about this coming spring, uh, a teaching series along with a practice series, a series on prayer. But for today, what greater act of humility do we have in our self-reliant, self-sustaining culture, our self-reliant churches, our self-reliant faith, than to humble ourselves, to get on our knees and to pray.
Yes, to bring your lament and your petition, but more importantly, to simply talk with God. Because language, while it is the form of transaction, language is not only transactional, language is also the bridge to intimacy. Think of your closest relationships. If they were simply transactional, how long would they last? How good would they do? No, we share, we share our hopes, we share our dreams, we share our ideas, our inspirations, our random quirky thoughts. And notice this, we're encouraged to walk humbly with God, not humbly before God. God promise us, promises us to meet us in that humility, to meet us in that relationship to meet us in that partnership. After all, you know, all of the problems that we experience in this world could go away in an instant if God just said, look, you guys are not handling it enough. I'm gonna take control. I'm gonna just do it my way. That would fix it all. But that's not God's plan. God's plan is to meet our world head on through you and me and through his acts of mercy and kindness and the miraculous things that he does, but through you and through me. May our prayer life grow beyond transactions into intimacy and humility, developing a relationship with the one who loves us the most. May we be reminded of the grace bestowed upon us so many times in our life. And may that grace result in gratitude which protects our hearts from a legalistic transactional faith. And may we learn to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. As you know, we've been following the lectionary texts throughout this season, and we've spent all of our time in our Old Testament text for today. Our New Testament text for this day, our gospel text, is the section from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, which you may recognize. It's the time in which Jesus ascends the hill and the people gathered sit to listen and he begins to teach this passage known as the Beatitudes. And of course, we preached through the Beatitudes last spring, and I'd encourage you to go back and to listen through that series because it was where we began to question, consider what is this way of Jesus? Of course, we sang a song that is essentially the Beatitudes this morning. That was on purpose. In closing, I thought I'd lead us in a prayer through the Beatitudes as a way as a response to take this idea of grasping onto the grace of God, to living in gratitude and to enacting justice and mercy and love and humility before God. So as I do so, I'd encourage you to open your hearts, hear these words, hear these challenges, take your sermon notes home that have some blanks for you to fill in Spend some time with those and ask yourself, is God getting the best of me? Or am I 
little bit frustrated? <laughs> Am I a little bit bitter? Let us pray. Jesus, as he went up the mountain, sat before the crowd and began to speak. Lord, in the same way, we open our hearts. We open our ears to you today. Oh God, give us this day humility so that we can see you in the most vulnerable around us. Oh God, give us a cup with which to catch the tears of all who are weeping, broken, and hurting. Lord, give us a strong arm for which the long suffering around us may cling to as we support one another through this life. Lord, give us a humble and broken heart which contends for hope and heals and contends for healing for those who have been harmed or wronged. Lord God, give us humility which looks at the other, the stranger, the threat, and sees your beloved who deserves grace and mercy and forgiveness, just like we do. Lord God, give us friendship which embraces those dear to us and those who we might not know yet, inviting them to come and to see and to taste what we've experienced, your goodness and your love. And Lord God, give us hospitality which welcomes those who are seeking, hunger, hungry, and longing for your mercy. And Lord, finally, give us words of hope and comfort of grace so that we can whisper comfort and peace into the ear of those who have suffered in the serving of your kingdom and of your name. God, may we your, be your people. May we be your church through which your kingdom is alive and thriving, finding root and Lord, healing hearts. Amen.